0: Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to season three of the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition and I firmly believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Angela Walker. Angela is trained in functional and nutritional medicine and is the editor of the new book, Case Studies in Personalized Nutrition. This book showcases new models and best practices for clinicians in personalized nutrition and lifestyle medicine for a number of different chronic conditions. And it's something that we're going to talk about today. So without further ado, Angela, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Ben. And thank you for inviting me on the show.
0: So firstly, I've read the book. found it absolutely fascinating and enlightening. Uh, what was your inspiration to wanting to write it and put this together?
1: Okay, so this book has actually been a very long time in coming. Um, it was about 2010, 2011, and I was um, quite involved with what was then Metametrics Laboratories. It's now been, they've, they've now been absorbed into Genova. And through my interaction with them, I got, um, was introduced and, and became a good, good friend and colleague to Cara Fitzgerald. and She had just done a case studies book um, with some of the, the leaders and, and the, the, the founders of MetaMetrics Laboratories. And I just thought it was fascinating like, to have those practical clinical examples of case studies written up in a kind of structured format. And I thought, this is what we need for the you know, for UK market and for um, personalized nutrition people, no, nutritional therapists. Um, so that's kind of, where, well, 10 years ago, really. Um, and I sort of tried to develop the book concept back then, um, but just didn't get the other things got in the way. And then Singing Dragon came came to me in, a couple of years ago and said, you know, we want to do this series. Have you got any ideas? And I presented the idea to them. And uh, yeah, they, they snapped it up. So it's been a long time coming. And I think it's it is super important to present to, to get more systematic about how we present case studies and, as, a, as a demonstration of, of what it is that personalized nutrition can do and, and the evidence that, that supports what, what we do in practice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in the book, you cover um, kind of conditions ranging from gut health and co- cognition and mental health to endometriosis to even autoimmunity. How did you choose these kind of topics and why do you think it was good to present them?
1: Okay, so I wanted to um, cover the kind of like the big themes of of the the type of cases that we see in practice. And I also wanted to kind of handpick the the practitioners um, who I invited to to contribute because I think there's there's a wealth of different types of practitioners who are out there. And there's some who are, you know, who have quite a public voice. Um, we hear a lot about what they do. And I wanted to, you know, I've got some of those um, because, you know, they're brilliant and very knowledgeable and experienced practitioners for all the right reasons. But I also wanted to showcase some of the sort of lesser publicly known practitioners, but who are absolutely kind of deep rooted in their expert knowledge. So, um, you know, and their specialisms there. So it was kind of a combination of picking the key themes that we see as practitioners um, in clinical practice and sort of what the specialisms of the of the individual practitioners were. And it, it seemed to sort of um, work out. Obviously we've got kind of a few crossovers where you, you've got gut issues that sort of pre- prevalent in quite a few cases. You've got, although there's only one case that is specifically chronic fatigue case, you've got sort of chronic fatigue type um, uh, symptom patterns in in quite a few of the cases. So of course, there's lots of lots of crossovers, but but yeah, that was basically why I designed it and put it together in in that way.
0: Yes, and what was really nice to see, well for for me anyway, and I kind of geeked out on this, is the the inter interconnectivity between these kinds of conditions, and and the amount of overlap that there is between them as well. And um, I remember Dr. Tom saying, you know, the the chain will break at the weakest link. And it seems like a lot of the functional problems are very similar with these um, patients or clients, but the outcome of their uh, their condition was very different.
1: Absolutely. And that's that's what we all kind of learn as practitioners, that. The, the diagnosis that they have received from their medical practitioner if they've got a diagnosis is is almost is very important but in a way it that doesn't tell us what are the what's the root cause of their issues and so we as practitioners in personalized nutrition need to go back to what is the root cause and that's going to vary and have lots of crossovers as you say with with um, in, in lots of different you know two people may have exactly the same condition but they've got very different root causes another two people can have very different conditions but they've got exactly the same root causes so yeah it's it's exactly as, as as we we know it works in in clinical practice
0: yes and i think it's very easy for people to kind of digest and understand that when you say like you can have the same diet as someone else but you can um, acquire or develop a condition which is entirely different. It's the same p- when we look at like twin studies, and, we're, and we we look at someone who's basically had the same environment and the same kind of food and interventions throughout their life but they'll end up with entirely different conditions by the end of it. So one might present with IBS and the other one might present with an also immune condition, but even though they've had the same upbringing, if you will, I find that fascinating as well, but it shows you how you need to personalize an approach based on, and um, not just the underlying root cause, but also their, their symptoms as well.
1: Yeah, totally. And I, I think there's, there's a, there's a danger in our field that, we can get sort of very fixated on, oh, you know, the FODMAP diet or the paleo diet or the ketogenic diet, and sort of try to make that the answer to so many different conditions. And and it's actually just not—it's not that straightforward because there is a need to really, when somebody has a chronic condition, when they've been unhealthy, when they've been ill for a number of time, a, a length of time there's often a need to really personalize and to tailor things for them. And, you know, they don't just need a copy cutter um, version of the diet that's, you know, sort of handed out that they can download from the internet. They need it to be really tailored and personalized to them, to their individual needs. And I think that's what we tried to really pull out and to demonstrate in in the book. You know, there are lots of examples where somebody followed, you know, a FODMAP-based diet, but it was adapted to them to be personalized for their individual needs and you know you can see many different examples of that throughout the book
0: Yes, and I was just about to bring that up, actually, because I think someone was following the FODMAP-based diet, but they actually removed the kind of very high FODMAP foods but left other FODMAPs in and to see how they would fare. And they actually fared very, very well, rather than strip everything back to very, very basic and then build yourself up introducing more and more FODMAPs as you kind of move throughout the diet. I thought that was really interesting as well.
1: Yeah, again, we I really tried to make sure those... The, the way the, um, the the practitioner adapted the diet to tailor it for each individual situation, I wanted to make sure that that really came out so that this wasn't just about, you know, I'm going to take that diet off of the shelf and hand it over to this person. Um, and, and really to, I, I guess, as a sort of training exercise to really demonstrate why that was important. So I think it was in... Um, Lorraine's case, where the, the the patient had had taken a FODMAP diet, but she'd really sort of gone all in, and she'd ended up on on quite a sort of heavily refined diet, and so she had to sort of be uh, be guided back as to to how to make that a, a little bit more relevant and a little mm-hmm. bit more um, personalised for her, because I think so often you you know we've all been in that situation where you clients come to see you and they've become they followed such a restricted diet that they've just sort of drained, you know, they're basically only eating kind of three or four different foods and, and that's starting to become a problem. Like the diets become an inhibiting factor, Mm -hmm. not a helping factor. Um, And that, that's, that can be so often the, the, the risk. um, And and we're always trying to sort of adjust and, and, and to protect clients from, from that sort of thing.
0: Yes. I think it's absolutely hugely important um, a question which I get repeatedly asked now and it's just popped into my head is nutritional therapy evidence based? And similar to how doctors use evidence based medicine, you describe evidence based practice in the book. So, what does this mean and how is it used? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, absolutely, nutritional therapy or personalized nutrition is and should be evidence based. And um, in my in my view, this, this book is an important step in sort of laying down the foundations for how we demonstrate that that evidence exists and demonstrate that to the wider audience, not only to the clients that we see and the potential clients that we see, but also to other healthcare practitioners. Um, so this this concept of evidence based practice it means that you're looking at, through at the evidence from the widest lens possible. You know, we're not restricting ourselves to the randomized control study, which are ideal for a medication, um, pharmaceuticals, where there's a high risk from taking that, but you need to see clearly what the what the effectiveness is. Now, something like a, a nutrient, a type of diet, there's a, a relatively a lower risk f- for that Um but there might not be the same breadth and the same sort of quality of evidence, but there are pieces of evidence that you can kind of stitch together. And then you're looking at well, what, is the, what is the evidence of other people in a similar situation? How have they responded to that? Okay, that's my, my own kind of anecdotal, my own clinical experience. And how do we kind of build on that? And that's really, it's that stitching process, that pulling together of all the different sources and types of evidence That a really skilled practitioner is doing every single day in in practice, and that's what this book is hoping is is attempting to to demonstrate.
0: Yes, and you you mentioned that kind of weighing up the benefit of um, a certain intervention um, against the harm, and I play with this concept quite a lot because I feel like in nutrition and nutritional therapy um, and alternative medicine in general, although I don't like the word alternative, but complementary medicine and or yeah let's stick with that is that you can have an intervention which has very little chance to do harm but possible chance to do benefit and not all the evidence might be there you you refer to evidence quality and the same kind of quality of evidence might not be there but then why wouldn't you implement it if it has no potential to do harm but has a possible benefit and i feel like certain doctors might not want to do this at all when I don't really see a reason why?
1: Well, I think patient patient preference has to come into a lot of this. And, and some people want to find a non-pharmaceutical approach to the issues that they've got. Mm. And, you know, there are times when the pharmaceutical approach is absolutely what's needed. And there are times when there is a choice and patients should have, clients should have that choice as to how they want to approach it. Now, it might mean that they've got to do a few more fundamental changes, lifestyle changes. Um, you know, there's a case study in here where um, somebody had sort of to all intents and purposes metabolic syndrome hadn't been diagnosed as such, but
0: it was Joe uh, Gamble's case, wasn't
1: it? It was Joe Gamble's case. Yes. So that practitioner had uh, that client had they gone to a doctor, they might've been given statins. They might've been given blood pressure medication, but she didn't want to do that. And, we demonstrate that through her fundamentally changing some lifestyle factors, her diet, but also how she approached her life, her quality of sleep, her quality of exercise, her type of exercise, she got she felt fantastic as a result of that, and she, you know, she was able to reverse all of the negative biomarkers that you'd seen in her in, in her blood test kind of beforehand. So it's patient choice at the end of the day.
0: As nutritional therapy encompasses these kind of different interventions, if you will, and for tackling certain dysfunctions, how can you measure the efficacy of nutritional therapy? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so no, this is a really hot topic. And I think kind of in the past, when I look back to when I was training sort of 12, 13 years ago, it was a little bit of a head in the sand approach that we had and that's not sufficient if we want to really honour our profession and, and help to take it forward. So there's a lot of work being done. Um, Miguel is, is heading something with with BANT, um, where we look at the patient-related outcome measures, so, so PROMs, this idea that the patient or the client just de- defines what, the, and, and monitors their own progress. So, so an example would be the MyMap. the Measure yourself, um, Medical Outcomes. Um, and there's, there's various other questionnaires which are sort of used in that you, you give yourself the questionnaire, you score yourself at the start of the um, intervention, at the start of the diet changes, and then you monitor yourself maybe sort of every four or six weeks and you score yourself. And so you can see your self-reported symptoms changing, and I think that's that's going to be another key plank in how we sort of build this whole this changing approach to how do we perceive and how do we report and look at evidence in, in this field. Um, so we did. That's why we there's there's a there's an important chapter I think on uh, in the book I think called um, which is called, called the evidence um, building the evidence case and we we discussed present exactly that because we felt it was such an important point to raise within the, the whole topic
0: yeah and i guess it's quite hard for people to grasp because nutritional therapy tends to encompass or tackles a lot of different conditions and that raises a great level of skepticism i think from a lot of people as well when I think the underlying dysfunctions for a lot of these conditions are very similar. So, therefore, they kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Overlap and are relevant to other conditions as well, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is, this sort of highlights. That, that difference of approach between the, the conventional medicine, which tends to look at, okay, it, it, the, t- the silo type approach, okay, you've got diabetes, so what do we do with diabetes? You know, we just stay within that, that silo of diabetes versus uh, personalized nutrition or functional medicine, which looks at, okay, this person is expressing these symptoms, what are the root causes of those symptoms? And as mm-hmm. soon as you come at it from a root cause point of view, it, it kind of becomes obvious that, yeah, inflammation is going to play a big role big role. Um, out of control, oxidative stress is going to play a big role. The microbiome is going to play a big role. And mm-hmm. these are all things that your diet, your your lifestyle can fundamentally shift over a relatively short space of time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's not, you know, anything radical. We know that from the scientific evidence as well. But how do you find working with health or medical professionals when you are working with a client? Because I understand like some of the tests you might have to get done through medical means.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I haven't done any, I I, I've done less, less clinical work over the last kind of few years. Um, Really as I've been sort of focusing more on, on on the book and on, on on other areas, but Mm -hmm. I was heavily involved in the Optum Health Clinic, where we specialised in people with chronic fatigue, um, and you know I worked with them for kind of seven or eight years, and still still have clients with them, but just at, at a much lower level. Um, and there, yeah, we would always have that interface with, well, what are the medical, what are their medics saying? And it's actually it's actually quite fascinating and encouraging that increasingly, I would say, over the years, we got much more receptive um, interaction with, with the medics. I don't think there are any hard and fast rules about it because uh, I think it, it, it really depends on the individual, in, on the individual medic medic involved. Um, but, you know, my, my best practice, and I think, you know, is advocated sort of in the book and through various of the cases which had that interaction with a medic. It's just, Share the information, um, keep it succinct, s- explain what it is you're trying to do, explain why you're asking for that test, um, and and share your approach as much as possible, and, and be prepared to support the evidence for why you think that, that approach is, is, is the right one. And I think, again, it's an important part that how we interact and how we communicate with Uh, the medics is is really important for how the the whole profession is going to develop and evolve.
0: Absolutely. And I think people are becoming much more open minded to this as well. Certainly, well, I'm very v- biased in the in the kind of the, the people that I certainly speak to within this field seem to be very open minded about it too. And I think as evidence is kind of coming to the forefront and nutrition is becoming more sexy, you know, it's be almost becoming like quite fashionable <laughs> to be healthy and things like that people are starting to take notice. But yeah. it's very, very interesting to see how that interplays with our relationship, nutritional professionals, with the medical profession as well. How do you see personalized nutrition developing in the future?
1: Well, I hope it's going to grow in recognition and and really almost become sort of mainstream, kind of become the norm. I mean, my, my sort of bigger vision is that this is just, this isn't, the the words you do we call it alternative medicine do we call it complementary medicine mm. like i, I don't I, i'd love to see a point where those don't even come into the vocabulary it's just this is the approach to healthcare and to people's healthcare and that you look at the root causes and look at what you can address what habit changes what you can address which essentially all come from lifestyle, so from diet, from exercise, from sleep, and you know, guide people on how they can make those changes and why it's why it's relevant for them. So, you know, I think we've got a long way to go before that happens, but I think there's there's really exciting um, kind of developments and sort of shoots. Like I was listening to your your chat with um, Robert Thomas and you know the biological treatment of of cancer and how in some of those areas actually the recognition of that the treatment is going to be more effective if the patient's digestive system and microbiome is kind of in an optimal state and Mm -hmm. I've you know i've I've heard similar anecdotal stories from my own clients. Um, you know I do some corporate work with one of the big pharmaceutical companies, and I'm hearing those similar kind of stories and that recognition of the importance of lifestyle um, really kind of coming to the forefront. I actually think I don't know dare I say i I think the microbiome has been a big game changer because again, if I look back to 15 years ago when I started studying nutrition you know we were taught we were taught then the importance of probiotics and the importance of a good healthy bowel flora and quite frankly people thought we were weird and cranky and why would you do a poo study on somebody you know a poo test yeah on somebody and it was all kind of weird and and, and cranky now fast forward 10 years like that is the norm. You've got mm-hmm. Silicon Valley companies who are kind of advocating and supporting this. So like, I think the microbiome has been the, the changing point at which what we do within personalized nutrition sort of gets normalized. I th- still think, we, you know, I know we've got a huge way to go, but that's what I want, for, for this just to be mainstream. And I think what's interesting is we've got public support behind us. Like the public believe this like they've they always like they lean in they they intuitively know that this approach is is appropriate i think the resistance is with some of the sort of old school medics and and slowly slowly we're we're kind of getting there and, and and shifting things
0: Another question I wanted to ask you about is functional testing, because a lot of people ask me, you know, we know functional testing happens in nutritional therapy clinic, but is it needed and why?
1: And I think I think those are really valid questions. I have my own um, my own personal question I, I always ask before I recommend any testing is what am I going to how will the results of this change the direction of where I'm going? Will it will it change my recommendations on diet, on supplements, on lifestyle? Um, and if the answer is no, then I don't think it's a it's a valid test to do. Um, I think this is a really important area because as clinicians we know how important testing can be and I think the, the the book and the cases that are covered within that give some fantastic examples of where testing was a, able to absolutely unlock like a missing link or unlock and pinpoint what was the, you know, an underlying factor mm-hmm. for, for, for one of those cases. But I think, you know, a bit of hesitation because again, as personalized nutrition people, suddenly operating and functioning in the in the uk like i think we have to be sensitive because this is where we can sort of tread on the toes of some of the medics and i think probably there's been examples where testing has been overused um and hasn't been essential and hasn't been necessary and and that sort of can become a bit of a weakness um, and a bit of a a, sort of gives an own goal to the people who want to criticize personalized nutrition, so I think it's just important to get the the balance right and it was why I also found it i thought it was super important to do a separate chapter on functional testing and again my own experience i i um had a role in what was then nutrition geeks they're now in vivo clinic in vivo clinical um where they were the distributor of Metametrics, so I, you know, had a fantastic training and, and grounding um, education really with the, the Metametrics people, which is where I met Cara Fitzgerald. Um, and I think it's super important to kind of acknowledge and, and respect the role that testing can have, um, and for there to be a tool, a resource, if you like, that was independent from the testing companies, because part of the challenge you've got as practitioners is all the training and all the education on testing comes from the laboratories themselves. So you've just got an inevitable sort of, you know, there's a bias in there because they, you know, they can't be impartial. Um, and so I wanted to uh, have, have the chapter in the, in this case study book that, that really kind of offered that impartiality when it comes to, to testing. One thing
0: which I think people struggle with is the availability and the affordability of these tests as well. Even if someone's saying that this would be very useful for you, someone might be worried because it's a very expensive test. You know, these can range from anything from £80 all the way to £350. So what do you think with that? Yeah, well, and up. I yeah. definitely uh-huh. end up. Um. So what do you think about that? Do you reckon... Yeah can we have some um, benefit without using them as well?
1: Totally, totally. And I think, you know, they are not, they're not an essential part of personalized nutrition. They're, they're a hugely important part of personalized nutrition, but there are many, many examples of where clients can be helped and guided with personalized nutrition without using, without using testing. Um, I think, they, their their role was perhaps overemphas. You see a lot of examples in the cases in this book because we were looking at particularly complex cases. But mm. you know, Lorna's chapter, for example, had very very little um, testing, it, no functional testing. It was really only thyroid results which had come which had come from the GP. So you know, we did have the the, the full you know examples of of, of cases which don't use functional testing i guess again if i'm if i'm sort of putting my visionary hat on Mm -hmm. where would i love to see that that this goes well if we get to a point where personalized nutrition kind of really comes into the umbrella and it's just it's part of how how we do how society does medicine how society does wellness and health and, and prevention then in the same way as you know you don't pay it point of use for the nhs you, you know pay in other ways but it's it, it, it's not it's free to to use at the point of um uh, point of use then that would also be the case for some of this functional testing but again you've got to really kind of merge the two systems and you've got to really it how do we how can we integrate and bring personalized nutrition um fully into it fully yes. into the the medical system
0: yeah but i remember reading i think it's chris Cress's book unconventional medicine and where he talks about the idea of this kind of functional testing this functional approach and the upfront costs in a lot of these instances is more but if you're able to solve the root cause of the problem and remove the condition for example whether that be hypertension high cholesterol things which need or quite often will be will have medication to control them Um, you remove that burden on the NHS or any healthcare system, and then the overall cost on that system is smaller, even though there's an initial upfront cost which is greater. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, Yeah. and I think absolutely, but what we have to fundamentally share is impressions, cost. (laughs)
0: So
1: at the moment, now, certainly in in the UK, where the... The impression is that medical care is free well the reality is it isn't you've paid for it in another way mm-hmm. but i think you know we we have this model of don't worry wait until you get ill then come to us and we'll give you something to fix that whereas actually if we turn it around and say okay well what what can you do to prevent these conditions that, by the way, is also going to make you feel more energised, more vital, have clearer cognitive function, and generally feel better and have a better quality of life. Then you don't have all the you know, hidden costs further down the line. But it's a it's a big shift to do, and it's going to take some sort of bold initiatives to to get there. But yeah, it's it's feasible and it's and it's doable. Um, and I like. I, you know, there's a lot of us who kind of, I uh, kind of, how can, what can we do to help move things towards that? So yeah, that's our goal.
0: One <laughs> personalized nutrition book at a time. That's, uh, that's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I think it's fantastic. And um, I'd highly recommend it to anyone. What is the most significant health change that you've made in your life after you've experienced all these things and why?
1: Um, so this is an interesting question. Um, Honestly, I think it, it's it's it was making the decision to study nutrition because what that led me to was not only the fundamental changes in my own lifestyle, but it also led to a completely different lifestyle, um, you know, and a career and a career change. And I think looking back, you know, in my twenties and thirties, so much of that time. My lifestyle just really was not conducive to feeling healthy, and I don't think I can pinpoint it to I changed my diet or I started exercising more or I started sleeping better. I don't think I could pinpoint it to one thing: it was that whole shift of lifestyle that allowed me to be happier, to be more fulfilled that allowed those things to just happen more automatically. So that's probably, <laughs> you'd probably much prefer like a simple answer of like, oh, I just started eating more avocados, but <laughs> that's the choice. <truth>.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's usually not always that simple though. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you think personalized yeah. nutrition can be more integrated into healthcare?
1: Look, I think we we talked lo- we talked lots today mm. about the vision and and how that could how that could be. I think the way that that's going to happen is by re- by being disciplined in how we approach the, the way we present the evidence. And I think we've got to kind of lean in and figure and, and do things like I'm I'm considering and looking at options for how do we how do I expand the case study book? Like, how do we take that as a platform and then build on these n equals one studies, where we've, you know, we've got thousands of them happening in the UK right now? Like, how do we systemize that? And there's examples. Um, you know, I'm collaborating with people in the US who are trying to do a similar thing. So, I think that's one important step. Then there's the the, the bodies of of how do we use the the PROMs and how do we use that as a way of sort of formulating because it's it's only if we can demonstrate this evidence that that's the only way that we're going to get fully integrated and, and we've got to be able to talk the same language we've got to be able to work um, you know collaborate by using the same language and having a have, having that sort of synergy within the within the system so yeah just it's, as, a log, it's a long it's a long job but we've got to go that way
0: so it's like a practical bit of advice for practitioners would you say they have to create more detailed comprehensive case studies in order to add to this body of evidence
1: no i think they've got to get more systematic in how they're how they're um tracking progress mm-hmm. and how they're reporting progress so i'm really uh, i'm hugely encouraged by the work that bant and Miguel are doing yeah. where they're doing these this series of um, kind of research in practice but you they're just asking practitioners to sign up and to record like my marks or gut brain um, questionnaires and track them at the start of the intervention during and at the end of the intervention and I think the more that practitioners can get involved in that, And just to to get used to the idea of doing of of approaching things in that way, um, I think that's where we all have to go with our own practice. Because then you can say, you know, then you can quickly do an audit and say, Yeah, well, in my practice, you know, this is I've seen that people's MIMOP scores or equivalent scores have shifted by three, four, five points over three months. Like that's a measure of the effectiveness of what I'm doing. It doesn't matter that all my interventions were, were personalized, but you've got a systematic away, way of demonstrating your effectiveness.
0: Brilliant. And last but not least, can you please provide the listeners with three tips to help improve their health and wellbeing from today?
1: Uh, I think this <laughs> always come, comes back to more vegetables, like yeah. more vegetables, like that and the, and the diversity and the, and the different types and different varieties of vegetables. Um, obviously, kind of reducing down the sugar, like cutting out all the, the refined sugar and the hidden sugar that that, that we see so often. Um, but also improving the quality of sleep, which I think is, it's not the hidden um, problem anymore, because, you know, there's, there's so much more kind of awareness and understanding kind of out there. But I think a big issue that we have with our quality of sleep is, is devices like the use of devices. Um, I just, you know, I was on holiday with my family and seeing like the young kids, like nine, 10, eight, nine, 10 years old, like they are hooked on their devices. Yeah. And all I can think is what is that doing to your quality of sleep? Um, Because, you know, when you obviously, when you're using that at the end of the day, it affects the blue light affects uh, your production of Mm melatonin So I, you know, the importance of sleep in terms of our, our overall health, I just I, I don't think can be underestimated. Um, so doing things that will improve our quality and our length of sleep, it's made a huge difference for me.
0: Fantastic. And a third one?
1: So sleep devices, sugar, and vegetables.
0: Okay, well, <laughs> I yeah. had four. You had four. Okay. If you want I another one, them. I would say. Don't I,
1: if you want another one, I would say fermented foods and drinks. Yeah. Like get it because getting it's a simple way. I think especially with the fermented drinks that you now get, you you get you see such an increase in in the use of kombucha and the availability of kombucha. Like we have to be careful because. I've drunk some of the kombuchas in the UK, and they are horribly sweetened. So you have to kind of check the the, the sugar content. Of course, they're going to naturally have sugar that gets fermented, um, but but not they shouldn't have added sugar on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is just such a simple way to increase the diversity in the in the gut b- bacteria. And then, you know, we know that that has a kind of multitude of event, m- multitude of in- impacts. So there you go, four Perfect. or five.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, Angela, it's been a huge pleasure to have you on the show. I really appreciate your time. I will link to everything that we've talked about in the show notes. But just before you go, can you please tell the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects you have coming up?
1: Yes. Um, so I, you can find me, my website is feedyourselfsmarter.com. Um, I have a, a Facebook, uh, group and I also have a, an Instagram account, feed yourself smarter. So it's all the same. That's kind of my branding. Um, and I ha- have also started and, and developing a, an, an online program. So, um, my, it's my fundamental belief that a lot of what we do in personalized nutrition, we can actually do in a group format um, mm-hmm. and in an online format, which makes it so much more accessible, readily accessible to, um, to clients, to people, to consumers, kind of in a, in a day-to-day basis. So I've just started my first um, cohort on the, on the, online, um, on the mm-hmm. online program uh, it's called food for thought so within with on any of my social media channels you'll you'll see sort of updates and information about that about that
0: perfect and um, i'll link to all that in the show notes angela it's been a huge pleasure to have you on the show i've really enjoyed speaking to you and i do hope that we can do this again soon
1: thank you very much i enjoyed it too
0: Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Josh Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support.